there was this dogma in the in the 90s that said that markets drive everything, right? The joke was at one point, how many University of Chicago economists does it take to change a light bulb? None. The market will do it all by itself. <laughs> hey, this is Matt. You're listening to the Slavic Connection. Today, our new host, Tracy, hosted her first episode. Tracy, who did you have on the podcast? Thanks, Matt. Today, I was joined by my co-host, Colin, and we interviewed Dr. Elizabeth Colin Dunn, who is a professor of geography at Indiana University. So we talked about how she got her start in anthropology, then did some work on food studies in Poland, and finally, her new book, No Path Home. Hope you enjoy. Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm so excited to have you here today. I'm so glad it worked out that you're here giving a talk later today about vascular geopolitics, tunnels, choke points, and warfare in the South Caucasus. But I actually know you from your food studies work, so I'm hoping that we can go back in time a little bit and talk about you just got your PhD in anthropology. All of your background is in anthropology, and I'm wondering what you do. Yeah. So my um, dissertation work was originally on labor. I was really interested in two transitions happening at once, and this is the early 90s. I was interested in the transition from socialism to capitalism in some form, and I, I was really interested in transformations within late capitalism towards a f- more flexible form of production. So I originally had planned on going to a joint venture in Warsaw, which was between FSO, the communist era automobile manufacturer, and General Motors, which was then using new Japanese forms of management. I get to Warsaw, you know, they fitted me for steel-toed boots and they called me and they said, whoops, Daewoo bought out the factory, you're out. So (laughs) now what? So I, I wandered around Warsaw in the rain for like a week thinking my life was over and then ended up going out drinking with a couple of old communist professors who knew some guy who lived in Zhrashov, who was the human resource manager at a baby food factory, which was a joint venture between a communist era baby food factory and Gerber. And so I ended up doing all my field work in a Gerber baby food plant. And it was Sid Mintz, the eminent anthropologist of food, who said to me, you know, you're not making cars anymore. And and that was the first moment in which I started to write take the product seriously as food rather than as a generic product around which labor was congealed. And that eventually led me down the path to thinking about the intersection between market forces, state governance, and food policy. Okay, so when he said you're not making cars anymore, was that like a Decoration on food? Was it embarrassing for you to like not have a background in food and then all of a sudden go into Gerber? Well, I, I Ger- when I was in the Gerber plant, it didn't really mm-hmm. matter. I mean, they treated it like yeah. cars. <laughs> I was working with people who had been very active in the solidarity movement. So labor mm-hmm. activism and the disempowerment of labor was happening across the Eastern ba- Bloc, but particularly acutely in Poland. And I think in the initial stages of focusing on the organization of labor and management, the the qualities of the product were less important. But then you come to realize that food is really very much a different kind of product. And the reason is it's perishable. And so food, the production of food puts a time clock on production, which other products do not have. So under socialism, for example, you can't wait to gather all your resources 
and over overbuy labor and then storm through the end of the production cycle because you know all your fruit has been sitting in wagons rotting in the sun so it demanded a different tempo of production and under capitalism it demands a kind of speed of production and it demands acute attention to turning an inherently perishable product into a durable product so that's mm -hmm. when i started thinking much more about the peculiarities of food production amazing. So when you say you were doing field work, were you actually on the line packaging? I'm just imagining, you know, baby food gets squirted out into those little jars and there you are screwing on the lids. So how yeah. did that work? We actually made a juice product called boba fruit, which had been a product in high demand in the socialist period because it involved fruit that other people didn't have access to. You had to have special coupons to get it if you were the parent of a very young child. But it was, you know, orange juice and carrot juice and lemon juice and these things that were not available to the average consumer. Yeah, I was on the line. I worked the line for almost 18 months. I worked as a forklift driver, as a bottle capper, uh, ran a bottle cap machine. I spent a lot of time in quality control, hitting the backs of bottles with a rubber tube to find out if they had spoiled. And then I spent a lot of time traveling with the sales force. I learned to trade. I always thought in case that whole anthropology thing didn't pan out, I at least knew something to do. I just want to even back up further. Did you always know you wanted to go to Poland? I mean, it sounds like you went there with a purpose and that didn't work out and that's how you ended up at Gerber. But when did you start studying Polish? Uh, not until graduate school. I, my undergraduate degree is in anthropology and Chinese. Yes. And I had gone to China, in, to Beijing University in 1989. And we were in martial law, under martial law after the Tiananmen Square massacre. And so, I came back from eight months in China, just bruised and beaten up. Like, I mean, it was the last gasp of a kind of Stalinist form of politics. We had, you know, spies in the dorm, and we had people with machine guns outside the dorm, and just super tight police control, like draconian police control over our movements. And I thought, I cannot do field work in this place. Actually, in the annals of stupid things I have said, I remember standing in Tiananmen Square. In 1989, going, this place will never change. Uh, <laughs> which turned out to be, you know, incredibly wrong. But I, I got really interested in the question of resistance to communism and these kinds of dissident movements. And that's how I ended up in Poland, because, of course, Poland was the home of the dissident movement that won. Exactly. So right. solidarity. Is that what you ended up doing some of your anthropology work in your bachelor's and in your master's then? Or... Yeah, I had I had actually read Adam Michnik's letters from prison in China, in Beijing, where I was helping translate them into Chinese and circulate them in Samizdat. My Chinese was not great, but I could at least explain <laughs> what the words meant. So we'd gone Polish to English, English to Chinese. Who knows what the hell that thing said. But I was really struck by Michnik's letters, you know, because they were such a passionate defense of liberalism. And... I was a child very much of the Cold War. You know, I grew up in the Reagan era. So the, a kind of battle between liberalism and, anti, or, and, and communism of a certain stripe, a draconian state communism, made a lot of sense to me. And that's how I got kind of interested in, in labor and labor movements, because it was really a basis for organizing in a way that, that the students in China never had. Because... It's interesting, the thing about dissidence is that it works better if it's place-based. If you have an organization and a physical space where people are coming anyway to do something else, 
you have a basis for organizing political movements which you don't have otherwise. And I think you can see this in the United States too. And the right wing from the 1980s forward has organized in evangelical churches. They provided an institutional structure for that anti-government movement that otherwise would not exi have existed. And the left did not have that space. Factories serve the same purpose. You're bringing people together every day for another reason. So that's how I got really interested in, in labor as a place where both anti-communist and anti-capitalist movements could, could grow. I mean, I really liked your book, Privatizing Poland, just because this idea that privatization was the golden key. You know, as soon as you privatize, as soon as you allow these industries to become more capitalist and almost neoliberal, everything is going to be solved. And your book is great because it kind of shows that that's not all you need <laughs> to make. Right. I mean, I was really interested in the fact that there was this dogma in the, in the 90s that said that markets drive everything, right? The joke was at one point, how many University of Chicago economists does it take to change a light bulb? None. The market will do it all by itself. <laughs> um, so, you know, there was this belief that market forces were, were necessarily going to impel people to capitalist behavior. And it turns out, in fact, you need a whole undergirding of deeply rooted cultural beliefs about personhood and about the capacities of different kinds of people to do different kinds of things in order for that to work, in order for those market impulses to be felt and act upon. People have to believe they have the capacity to move in mm -hmm. particular ways. And that set of ideas was not shared by people in Poland. It certainly was not shared by Polish workers. And so a big part of the work that went in to transforming these enterprises was this work of transforming people, which I thought was really important. And this notion that there is a managerial approach to the transformation of the human person. And my view that that's not entirely true or not really an adequate explanation. That's been the hallmark of my work all the way through. In fact, that's kind of what I do in different venues. Yeah, no, I definitely see that come up too in an essay that you wrote that turned into the afterword of food and everyday life in the post-socialist world, which I love. It's an anthology with seven essays, and I argue that yours is the eighth because Thank it's you. called, <laughs> of course, it's great, Turnips and Mangoes. And it kind of brings in that idea that regulations will save us off. You have these regulations and these overarching like managerial structures that people will follow. And so I love that it just rejects that notion and says, maybe there's a little bit more. And turnips and mangoes in this case, turnips refer to the people that, you know, the mangoes will say that the turnips in Poland are opposed to Europeanization. The mangoes are, of course, really proponents of it. And so you have that tension between the two. So I wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit about that afterward that I love so much. One of the interesting things about privatizing Poland, circling back to that, is that it's now in its second edition in Poland, and it and it's been sort of picked up and wi very widely taught. I think I've sold more copies in Polish than in English, really? and, and the book sold extraordinarily well for reasons I don't fully understand. But it's now being seen in Poland as an explanation of the turn towards authoritarianism. 
that those people who had been deemed sort of turnips, that they were unchangeable, that they had a communist attitude, that they couldn't get on board with capitalism. I think during the neoliberal era, the idea was that those people should just suck it up, right? That they should take this sacrifice for the good of the nation and just go away. And of course, they were not that excited about just going away. They had ways of life they wanted to conserve. They had ideas about the appropriate relationship between individuals and the state, which was one in which the parent state was caring for its child citizens. They had notions about who was a member of the nation and who wasn't. And those people are the people that ended up backing the Law and Justice Party, which has become incredibly right-wing, I mean, Mm -hmm. to the point of neo-authoritarianism. So if you want an explanation of what has happened in Poland and Hungary, I think that tension between the mangoes who saw themselves as sort of high-flying capitalists who could import goods without exporting labor or importing labor, and the turnips who believe that you should employ the nation, you should buy products made in the nation, and that goods and people shouldn't be moving across national borders so easily. That's the fundamental tension that's led to this turn rightward in Eastern Europe. So you'll have to excuse me because I haven't actually read this article. So I was confused. The the mangoes and the turnips are labels assigned to people, and it's yes. not necessarily related to your work in food. It is. It is. <laughs> um, it is it's very confusing, isn't it? The reason I use these terms is it actually came out of a debate over baby food. And the question was, what is it that Polish babies should eat? This is a question that was really very live in the factory where I worked, right? And so at that point in time, Gerber was saying that what people, what consumers wanted were these imported products, mango, banana, kiwi, passion fruit, you know, things that don't grow in Poland. And that the answer to rebuilding the health of the communist era firm was to start importing products and importing market ideologies and importing managers, but not importing new workers, putting those structures from outside on the enterprise. And those people who could not adjust to it or who were excluded to it because they were blue collar, those people were deemed as sort of turnips, things that grow in the Polish soil. Right. And and they were seen to be unfit for that kind of capitalism. And so they were excluded from that kind of neoliberal capitalism. Well, there was a backlash and they got theirs. Wow, that's very... It's a very loaded, there's a lot in there. Yeah, there's a lot in there. <laughs> so I, I was wondering, does your work in food studies tie, do you think that's a general trend in the post-Soviet world where you can see <laughs> that similar dynamic playing out or is it more specific to Poland? Oh, I think that's a, that tension between the winners and the losers of neoliberalism is playing out across Eastern Europe in different ways. But certainly Poland and Hungary, have, who were the leaders in this kind of neoliberalism, have experienced the backlash the hardest. And, you know, there I was in 1995 jumping up and down saying, you got to pay attention to these people. You can't cut them out. And everyone thought I was extremely foolish. And it turns out I, that wasn't such a foolish thing to say after all. So I, I think that's a huge tension. And it's a tension now in the advanced capitalist economies, right, where the notion 
that we should import products from around the world so that we can have, say, counter-seasonal fruits and vegetables in our grocery stores, but we shouldn't import labor that helps make them, that moves back and forth across national borders to produce this food. I mean, in many ways, that that notion that money and products should move, but people shouldn't, is it's a very anti-globalist notion in the first instance, but it's also, I think, a not very sustainable notion. So a lot of my work now has to do with refugees and asylum seekers. Mm-hmm. But I'm really interested in the fact that many of the people who are asylum seekers in the United States are also food workers. And I think that that connection has not been robustly developed. So it's worth thinking about, you know, if you're banning asylum, as the Trump administration has, and there are avocados rotting in the field, which there are because there's no one to pick them, perhaps those things are connected. Does that have a connection, maybe not in Poland, but in your work in Georgia? Is that where we see also the connection of like loss of labor and food? Well, Georgia is an interesting case. So I was originally doing a project in Georgia that was looking at European Union regulations and both EU and USAID funded attempts to get farmers to develop little processing industries, which they could then, through processes which were unclear, export to the European Union. And it turns out that the regulations that the European Union uses, which are supposedly non-tariff issues, they're about food safety and hygiene, in fact, function as trade barriers. And they're meant to be trade barriers, right? The European Union at one point in time upped the standard for aflatoxin in peanuts. So aflatoxin is a carcinogen. It is naturally produced by peanuts. They dropped it from 10 parts per billion to five parts per billion. And in doing so, saved an estimated two Europeans from developing liver cancer. Two. But they also excluded 13 African countries from entering the domestic, the European Union market. Wow, that is so, crazy. <laughs> so, so one of my initial arguments uh, and the things that brought me to Georgia is that while this dream of Europeanization, at least in the terms of money flowing in and products flowing out, was being held out to Georgia, if, you, if they just complied politically – that they could have this and all this money would come flowing in. That dream was never feasible because they didn't have the infrastructure necessary to meet those standards. And they never would Mm -hmm. because it involved a degree of capitalization that they did not have. So I remember going out to interview two guys who were running a USAID-funded project that was supposedly a jam factory. And when I got there, it was like two guys, some very old communist-era machinery in a pig barn. You know, like their information tracking system, which the European Union demands a kind of farm to table tracking, their tracking system was like highlighters and a notebook. So there was no way they were ever going to meet EU certification demands for import. And yet this dream of importing into the EU was being held out to them as a realistic possibility. And I'm guessing that this dream was pre-2008. It was pre-2008. Okay. So in 2008, I had gone to Indiana University. I was teaching at the University of Colorado. Gone to Indiana University to learn Georgian. 
It was the only place in the country where you could learn Georgian. Is that still true? No, we don't teach it anymore. Oh, no. <laughs> so um, as far as I know, there are zero places in the United States to learn Georgian. But, you know, Georgian is a notoriously difficult language. Exactly. Yeah. That was one of my questions. If you More horrible the language, than yeah. Mandarin Chinese, I can <laughs> wow. say with great authority. Strong statement. Yeah. Um, Ten years I've been working on it, and I'm still not as good as I would like to be. Oh. I had gone there, and I was planning to do a project on these USAID-funded projects and EU-funded agricultural development projects in Georgia. And I was on my way to the airport. I mean, I had rented out my house. I had sold my car. I had my five-year-old with me. And I had a Fulbright to Georgia that was supposed to start August 8, 2008. No. So I'm in the car driving to O'Hare when the phone rings. And it's the State Department. And they're like, where are you? I'm like, oh, I'm driving to O'Hare. And they're like, don't get on the plane. The Russians have invaded. They've bombed the airport. Oh, my God. So, yeah, that didn't go well. (laughs) Yeah, well, thank God we didn't go. Can you imagine if we'd gone the day before? You're in a country one day, you don't speak the language, you're with a five-year-old and the Russians invade. But anyway, so so we stayed back sleeping on the floor of a rented apartment for four months and, and ended up going there in January of 2009. And so what I found out was a lot of the farmers that I had wanted to study in South Ossetia, which is was a large apple producer. Is why I was interested in going there. Those farmers had become internally displaced people. They had been ethnically cleansed from South Ossetia, and they had been pushed into these newly built refugee camps. Originally, for about four months, they were in sleeping on the floor of libraries and kindergartens and other public buildings. And the Georgian government had a huge desire to get them out of those buildings because they had another wave of refugees who had been in public buildings 27 years. They wanted these people out and housed really fast because they knew this was not going to be resolved anytime soon. So they built these camps of little cinder block houses, but but very much built like a refugee camp, right? Like the same white tents all in a row, except these had cinder block bases. So that made them less mobile? It it made them less mobile. It made them less... it, It was curious because refugee camps are meant to be temporary. Of course, we know that the average length of stay in a refugee camp now is 17 years. Wow. I read a quote from, I was going to bring that up, but it says 12 years. So it's actually gone up. And I mean, you have 27 years too that people have already been in Georgia internally displaced. Yeah. So the Georgians I work with are now in their 11th year. But anyway, their first day in these camps was my first day. I was there the day they moved in. So I have been knowing these people, working with these people, talking to these people for over a decade now. And and mm. I think that that has given me some real advantages in that you get to see the long tail end of forced migration. So people who are watching forced migration, the European crisis, for example, with the Syrians and the Afghans coming, or people from Africa, are really somehow focused on the journey right? Like, oh my God, they're going into the sea in these little rickety boats. This is the least of the problems in many ways, because displacement is not something that happens for four days or six months or a year, but becomes for many of these people a lifelong condition. So what happens when being displaced is now the thing that defines you? What happens when the structures that govern you are the structures of humanitarian aid and of national governments which are being fueled by humanitarian aid? And 
turning authoritarian because of humanitarian aid. So I became really interested in, in what life in the humanitarian condition was like. And people would say, this is really far away from what you started with. <laughs> but it's not really. It's another question about the managerial development or managerial regulation of personhood and what people's capacities are as human beings. And here, the, the strictures on people who are the beneficiaries of humanitarian aid are even more tightly wound than they are for people who work in factories, right? Here are people whose entire capacity to move, to work, to marry, to speak their own language, to practice their own religion, all of those things are dramatically controlled by a managerial apparatus, which is a joint production of the nation state and of international organizations. So I became really interested in the ways that many of the humanitarians were thinking of refugee camps not as garbage dumps, like a place where you just contain the waste remnants of the nation state project. This is an Agambenian view uh, after the philosopher Giorgio Agamben, who would say that these people are totally devoid of, of social personhood. They've been reduced to just biological life. I don't think that that's actually how camps operate. I, I think they're much more meant to be recycling centers where people come in who have been stripped of their legal status and of their occupations, um, in many cases, their kinship relations, their capacities as citizens. They're stripped of all those things, and those things are being deliberately rebuilt in the camps in new ways through managerial programs. So when so, you say managerial programs, that means that the people that are actually displaced and in these camps, they don't really have a right to choose. They're not the ones really making these decisions. It's kind of like the humanitarian aid structure that's deciding who gets to go where next or what's really going to happen or are they even allowed to work? What happens in these camps? It depends on where you are. In Georgia, people were internally displaced. So they were, in fact, citizens, even if they were second class citizens now. And they had the right to work even if there were no jobs. So they didn't work for years after the displacement. Most people did not go back to work. They didn't have land. Many of them had been farmers. They couldn't cross the border. Many of them had been smugglers by trade. And my talk today actually is about smuggling. And they lost their jobs as teachers, as nurses, as drivers. So for many years, they did nothing but sit. And this sort of absence of selfhood because of an absence of things to do became really acute. In most camps around the world host that where people have crossed international borders. So they're technically speaking refugees, not internally displaced. Right. In most of those camps around the world, the residents do not have the right to work legally, which does not mean they don't work, right? Mm -hmm. Or trade or have businesses or anything else. But it does mean that they're in constant jeopardy because they're working under the table. Their livelihoods are always extremely precarious because they are constantly in violation of the law. So their, their very selfhood is in many cases illegalized um, by their status as refugees or as displaced people, which is somehow supposed to trump everything else and make them dependent on international agencies who are at the same time telling them how to be parents, how to be spouses, how to have sex, um, how to make reproductive decisions, how to be entrepreneurs in a country where they're not allowed to be entrepreneurs. 
So there are a lot of these kinds of pressures on them to conform to a certain neoliberalized idea of entrepreneurial personhood in conditions where they are actually legally prohibited from doing so. And that tension is can be really acute. And finally, in countries where they can work, like Germany, um, recognizing that this is a tiny fraction <laughs> of all displaced people, mm -hmm. even in those places where asylees have the right to work, um, they lose their skill set because they're not certified, right? The government of Germany has very strong programs for vocational certification. And if you don't have the certificate to be a hairdresser, you supposedly are barred from cutting hair. Um, so losing your profession and having to be recertified in a profession that you've practiced for sometimes a long time is very, very difficult for people. Right. So that tension, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> so that tension, I can imagine, res leads into your talk about smuggling. Because if you're instilling this entrepreneurial spirit in people, but not allowing them to do it over the table, does that tend to resolve outside of the expected framework? Like people tend to find to make their own way. <coughs> the difference between what they intend in these regulations and rules and what actually ends up resolving? Well, okay. So the people from South Ossetia who are the people I work with are mostly ethnic Georgians, although some of them are ethnic Ossetians. Um, these folks have been smugglers for a really long time, uh, since the fall of the USSR. And what has made smuggling particularly valuable now is um, a trade embargo which was imposed between Russia and Georgia in 2006, and which has been like taken down, put back up, taken down, put back up. So um, the other thing that has made smuggling particularly valuable is the EU embargo on Russia, which has uh, prevented the import of produce. And so most of what the people I know smuggle is not guns or drugs, it's fruits and vegetables. Um, mm. I once I had a friend um, who who is a smuggler of, he told me, tomatoes and cucumbers, which I always assumed meant guns and drugs. He's like, <laughs> finally, I'm like, I'm in the truck. I finally get a chance to ride with him. I'm in the truck. It's full of tomatoes. And I'm like, what are we doing? And he's like, why would I smuggle heroin? Like, it's dangerous. Number one, it's really dangerous. And number two, the profit margin is lower. Um, and that's because the EU embargo created such a price differential between the Georgian side of the Caucasus and the Russian side of the Caucasus, that if you could get a 20-ton truck loaded full of apples somehow across that border and into the market in Vladikavkaz, it would triple in value. $10,000 of profit per truck. Wow. So all of a sudden, these apples, which they had been smuggling across that border for decades, became incredibly lucrative. And um, the border... Uh, between South Ossetia and Georgia was militarized. The crossing points between South Ossetia or Georgia and Russia had been militarized. And yet people were still making it through in 20-ton trucks. Wow, that's crazy. And that's the Roki Tunnel that we're talking about. That is the about. Roki Tunnel that we're talking about, which is the only passage that is open year-round through the Caucasus. Huh. So it's a choke point. And uh, the project I've been working on with Jason Kahn's and, and some other people uh, has been looking at the effect of geophysical choke points on the lives of people who live in their deltas. And, of course, one of the things that we find is that 
whenever you create a choke point like that, the value of products on either side of that choke point changes dramatically. And that encourages all kinds of behavior. So around the world, and we're looking at places as disparate as the chicken neck, which is a a choke point in a little narrow strip of land which connects uh, India to North India. So it transits in this little tiny uh, neck through Bangladesh. So we're at the Chicken Neck, we're at the Panama Canal, uh, we're at the Bab El Mandab Strait, which is uh, um, how you move oil tankers out. Um, so we're looking at, at these at these choke points where traffic can be regulated and controlled geophysically, and we're we're asking how that regulation happens, what the effect is of that regulation, what kinds of economies it produces, and what kinds of people it produces. And in the case I'm studying, one of the kinds of people it produces is very skilled smugglers. Hmm. Um, in addition to um, tomatoes and cucumbers, which, by the way, I was unwilling to be involved in smuggling anything illegal, um, as I did not wish to spend the rest of my life in a Russian prison. <laughs> but there are people who also smuggle heroin. It goes both ways through the tunnel. Uh, weapons certainly go both ways through the tunnel. Um, it is a transit point for Chechen fighters heading into Syria and then heading back. Um, it's also a place where rogue nuclear material transits. So it's stolen out of Russian reactors and laboratories. And then it's coming south through the tunnel on its way to Istanbul, which is the market for those places. So the summer, so I did a bunch of the research in the summer of 2016, and that summer alone, authorities caught 16 different attempts to bring nuclear material through the tunnel or over the passes and into Georgia on its way out towards Turkey. So they caught 16. How many got through? Yeah. Yikes. Wow, so you were in Georgia for seven years, seven years straight. No, no, okay. no, not at all. I was in Georgia for uh, about, well, I had been going back and forth to Georgia mm-hmm. for a long time. I've been going there since 2001, so since before okay. the Rose Revolution. But um, I was there for all of 2009, and then I go summers. So I, I couldn't add it up, but it's a lot of summers. Oh, man. And you've never felt the desire to smuggle some of those Georgian cucumbers and tomatoes back to the United States? Um, no, we have tomatoes and cucumbers here. So, of course, <laughs> not of that quality. I'll exactly. be honest. They're pretty good um, because, you know, they don't have uh, industrialized agriculture in the same way. So you don't get those crappy beefsteaks that we get. Um, but, um, no, if I'm going to smuggle anything back to the United States, I confess it's spices because Georgia has spices (laughs) that you cannot get in the United States. So I did come through once with two kilos of Swanetti salt, which is like a spice blend. And I I got stopped, you know, like, what is this giant two kilo bag of stuff? And I'm like, it's delicious. Taste it. You think that spices would be okay. They wouldn't be able to catch it so easily. Um, you think it'd be okay, but they were curious as to what it was. Um, oh, they also have fenugreek, too, or some yeah, sort of fenu- marigold. Fenugreek, fenugreek, it's blue fenugreek, which is different than the fenugreek we get here. And in Georgian, it's called utso suneli, foreign spice. So I've always thought there's a project there somehow to find the origins of, of blue fenugreek. And the other thing they have is the so-called Georgian saffron, which isn't saffron at all, but powdered marigold. And you cannot really get that easily in the United States. So I bring that. I bring home tremali plum sauce, 
that's when I get busted because it's a liquid. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we don't grow tamale plums here, and it's so good. It's like this sour, sweet mm-hmm. plum sauce that Georgians use, like we would use ketchup uh, on meats and on French fries, and it's pretty good. Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah, Georgian cuisine, you know, is absolutely exquisite. Um, I was going to say, it sounds like you could make a killing at a farmer's market with some Georgian plum sauce. I Yeah, you could, but how you would schlep that much, uh, I don't know. But I, <laughs> I know that Georgians and people who love Georgia in the United States, like, tr- treat tremali like it's, I don't know, cocaine or something. Because you'll be at a conference and somebody will be like, psst, got any tremali? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's oh, it's yeah. trade. I mean – Industrially produced tremali is terrible, so nobody gets industrially produced tremali. Mm. You get home-produced tremali, which comes in refilled plastic water bottles. And so it trades hand-to-hand. I mean, there's an entire sort of um, affective, emotion-laden, bonds of friendship and kinship uh, market that goes on around these kinds of hard-to-get spices when you uh, and sauces when you bring them home. Yeah, and not even just sauces and spices, but the dumplings can call you. They're so hard to make. Have you ever tried to make those? Or no, I have, I have. And what I made was concrete. Uh, so hinkali <laughs> are giant soup dumplings, slightly smaller than your fist, and with a little top knot at the top, which makes gives them a little handle. And you flip them upside down, and you have to carefully bite two holes in the pasta, a little one to let the steam out, and then a big one, and you slurp all the soup out. Then you eat the meatball, then you eat the pasta. And the meatball is like a beef-pork mix with all sorts of great herbs and spices in it, which I cannot replicate. And it's really terrific. Um, And so if you're really good at eating hinkali, I mean really good, you can eat a dozen without your plate getting wet. But if your plate is wet, you're a rank amateur. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, I'm sad we couldn't do a live food demonstration. I mean, my stomach is already growling just thinking about them. I actually, there's a there's a restaurant in Chicago that makes them. They mm-hmm. think I'm crazy, by the way, because I phone in an order for like eight dozen and then I show up with a cooler and dry ice. Um, <laughs> and then I mule them back to uh, Bloomington, Indiana and save them. Um, like they have their labels in my freezer, like eat these and you die. Uh, that's a bit <laughs> so, of a drive for. Yeah, it's a four, it's four hours each way. But you know, what's that for a good dumpling? is going on in Indiana? You're the professor of geography now. Is there anything big going on in your department that you want to plug or you're on your book conference tour? I'm on my book conference tour, so No Path Home, Humanitarian Camps, and the Grief of Displacement, um, which is a book that is really emotional to me. It was a really hard book to write for me emotionally. Um, I could write about three pages and then go to bed and pull the covers over my head for a week or two because... You know, displacement is an enormously grief-laden process. It's the loss of yourself because ourselves are created in places. We are, in many ways, the products of the constraints produced by our environments. And so when you lose the environment that you're mapping your whole belonging onto, um, you lose a big chunk of who you are and you lose a big chunk of how the world makes sense to you. And I think... That kind of both grief and disorientation, we don't 
understand well enough to help people who are forcibly displaced contend with. And then we don't understand why they're just plagued with depression for decades or why they all have PTSD. We chalk it off to the war. But the displacement, the camps, they're as damaging to people as the war is. So it's really becomes important to understand what that process means. And that's what that book is about. Um, I'm also doing a lot more work um, on refugees and displaced people. So for the last few years, it's been focused on activism. Um, I'm the board of Exodus Refugee Immigration, which is a resettlement agency in Indianapolis. And we had the opportunity to sue Mike Pence this is right before the 2016 election, and he was governor of Indiana and announced that he would not permit Syrians to resettle in Indiana. That is discrimination on the basis of national origin. It's not constitutional. So they decided to push it. So we went up to the appellate court and we drew Richard Posner, who's like probably the most cited jurist in American jurisprudence. So, yeah, so we won resoundingly, and we were pretty excited. We really wanted to uh, bring Syrians to Indianapolis, um, not least of all for the restaurants. But uh, we had uh, Syrians that were turned away in midair, literally landed in Indianapolis and were forced to go back to Connecticut. So um, we never did get to admit Syrians because we won, but then Pence was elected vice president and we lost. Mm. So... This year, they're still doing the presidential determination, but in 2015, we admitted 95,000 refugees, and we were slated to admit 110,000 people for 2016. I mean, that is a tiny, tiny, little itty-bitty fragment of the world's refugee uh, population, which is now 70 million people. And... It is a tiny, tiny fraction of what, say, Germany has taken in. They've taken in well over a million people. Um, Berlin alone has taken in something like 200,000 people. It's fine. So we were not going to do very much as the United States. We could take in many, many more people, and we don't. Um, But now they're talking about dropping the number. Last year it was 20,000. And this year they're saying zero, zero oh, no. refugees. There are 70 million people in need of a place to rebuild their lives. And we can take zero. I mean, that's insane. Well, as someone from the Midwest, you know how crowded this country is. There's no free space <laughs> at all. Uh, I'm from Montana. So um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that the country's not full. I, I've been traffic. suggesting for years that the that the resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is just to give the Israelis North Dakota. Because we're not using it anyway. So um, that's only half facetious, actually. But um, sure, this country is not full. We have a labor market that's drawing people in. So the notion that we don't have, that they're taking our jobs is ridiculous. I always joke about Schrodinger's refugee, too lazy to work, but still stealing your job. (laughs) Um, You know, that's the, the discourse around refugees and asylum seekers in this country has departed so far from the reality of these people and their lives, what's impelling them here, what's pushing them here, and what's pulling them here. But they're they're being pushed out by horrific violence, some of it state-sponsored, and they're being drawn in by a labor market that needs their labor. I do a lot of work with meat packers um, because of some research I did previously, and the meat packers are saying, look, 
We are the economic engine of small towns where we're located. We don't use illegal Mexican labor anymore because they got busted so many times. Um, so we don't want to use illegals. So we've been, our whole business model depends on refugees coming in and working. It's, it's a horrible job, but it's fairly good paying. And it's a, it's a stopping point. People move out of it. But they need a constant flow in of refugees to staff these meatpacking plants. And if they don't have them, they cannot substitute poor white American labor, primarily because of the opioid crisis. Um, as one of my interviewees said, uh, heroin and meat saws are not a good combination. And <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go with that, you know. Um, so they can't substitute American labor for this. Americans won't take this job. Um, so the meat packers say what they'll do instead is automate. And once mm -hmm. they automate, those little towns where they're located will close up shop because they depend on refugees as consumers there. Right. And refugees are driving the restaurants, they're driving the shops, they're driving the grocery stores. And you will shut up those towns. They will just vanish if we don't bring in refugees. And that's true of many towns. Rutledge, Vermont wanted refugees mm -hmm. because they're going to die if they don't get some immigrants. Yeah. Um, Binghamton, New York, Syracuse, New York have been revived. I mean, these post-industrial wasteland towns have been revived by these new immigrant communities, which are starting up grocery stores and shops and restaurants. And so we need these people as an economic engine. Um, and I think there's many ways to do that um, that don't compromise national security. Yeah, I've actually seen that firsthand. I did my undergraduate at the University of Vermont, um, and Burlington is that much better for its very large refugee community, least of uh, not least of which is the restaurants. I agree with that. Um, but yeah, the the Rutland and Rutledge issues are not. Uh, it, it's disheartening to see that take hold in a place that prides itself on being inclusive, and it's supposedly a blue state where everyone's trying to, you know, be very progressively yeah, but minded. I think making this an ideological mm -hmm. issue has, um, in many ways, is a kind of red herring. Right. So it's been seen as sort of either you like immigrants and people who are not of your race and nationality or you're a nationalist. Right. Um, but it's really in many ways an economic issue. Right. Because we have always drawn people into this country because we have expanding labor markets. And that's I mean, right now, the labor, the unemployment rate in this country hit two point nine percent. I mean, at that point, you have businesses that cannot function and cannot expand or grow because of a labor shortage. And I, um, I actually went to Congress to lobby Congress on refugee admissions. This was in May. And um, the only office that wouldn't give us an appointment was Greg Pence's. He's taken over his brother Mike's uh, congressional seat. So I get on the flight back to Indianapolis, and I have the aisle, and who has the window but Greg Pence? <laughs> and I was like, you are my prisoner. <laughs> um, and I just talked his ear off, you know. And and he's – you don't get redder than Greg Pence um, in a totally different definition of red. Um, but <laughs> even he was saying, look, he says, I've got farmers in my office telling me we need immigrants. We can't function. He said, I've got manufacturers in my office saying – I could put on 300 more workers and start producing, but I don't have the labor. So 
in many ways, this is, at least for the American side of this equation, not a humanitarian issue, not a diversity issue, not an ideological issue. It's like a straight up economic issue. And, and in many ways, that's, there are many people who oppose that notion because they say it, it is dehumanizing to the people who come, which, okay, uh, maybe, but it's also expedient. It, it, that's an issue we can we can all agree on, that this country is a place where our economy grows, and as it grows, it brings in new people, and those people and their children become Americans. Yeah. Well, I, hopefully we'll be able to have you back maybe in two years with a different administration and a different outlook to see what's actually going on if anything changes. Yeah, I think that this is a global issue. Okay. Um, it's a global issue in the former USSR. It's a global issue in the former Eastern Bloc as much as it is anywhere else. Um, and I'm hoping beyond hope that there will be a turn of fortunes and, and the economic issues alone will impel people to lighten up. I hope so too. Hoping. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's a delight to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.